it's the horrible truth about what we do is that is that the, the, the moment you want to sell is like the moment your business is least valuable, right? <laughs> and, and the opposite is true, right? Like when your business is the most valuable, you'll never want to sell it. Can this business thrive without the owner? You've got to start putting systems and processes in place. If you don't use the systems, the business will break. We're always looking to buy back our time. You cannot say something once and expect that it actually is received. This is the way we work. A big motivation in that for me is creating a job for myself that I really enjoy. This is how you discover your vision. And this is Process Makes Perfect. Welcome to Process Makes Perfect. I'm Chris Ronzio, founder of Trainual, and today I'm here with John Warlow, the author of one of my favorite books, Built to Sell. And I'm addition, blushing, man. I'm blushing. <laughs> so in addition to being a best-selling author of Built to Sell and his next book, The Automatic Customer, John has started and exited four companies. So he is one of the foremost experts on B2B marketing for small businesses, and we are thrilled to have him here. John, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So I first read your your first book, Built to Sell, five or six years ago. It was being passed through the circle of my friends and everyone wanting to, to exit their companies. And I actually read it again, cover to cover, last week. And my wife was interested. And because of the format that you read... The, uh, wrote the book in. Uh, if you haven't read the book, it's a, it's written in a fictional style where it's a story of this guy, Alex, and his agency as he tries to position his company for sale. So it was so intriguing that my wife took the book for me and she read it cover to cover. And, <laughs> and so I think that says something. Uh, what what made you decide to write the, the story in that format? Uh, good question. I, I think because I wanted to write... I. I I'd done four exits for building four companies and each of them, uh, you know, I, I'm under confidentiality agreement. I can't talk about specifically what happened in any one of the exits. Um, so by creating a fictional story, it allows me to just make it all up. And so, you know, in within all of that story, there are little sprinkled lessons from both my own personal experience along with stuff that I've heard. But as soon as you make it public and say, this is what happened to me, it, you know, you have to dilute it down so much that it, uh, it becomes boring to read. So it's, it's a compilation of uh, lessons I learned through my own uh, exits as, along with I ran a company where we interviewed 10,000 entrepreneurs a year. We did quantitative market research. And so I've spent a lot of time talking to and interviewing and listening to the stories of entrepreneurs. So it's kind of an amalgam of all that. Uh, and I thought just the, the story was uh, was a good way to do it. Yeah, the format was so interesting. And, and there was this one uh, situation early in the book where the entrepreneur was out to lunch with a customer. And I remember reading this paragraph where he was afraid to pay for the bill because he thought that it <laughs> right. might be over the limit, but he was excited about the credit card points. And I just laughed and thought you nailed so perfectly the small business mindset. So obviously you have some experience in this area. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been the guy with the Amex going, oh, do you think the, the gods back at compliance are going to let this card pass one more? time yeah yeah <laughs> so at the sure. end of the book you have an implementation guide which I also <laughs> found really interesting and it's kind of a step-by-step -step sequence so after you go through the story here's the roadmap here's how to do it so in your four exits and four experiences building those companies did the recipe change a bit over time or how did you how did you put that formula together in writing the book yeah, again, it's kind of an amalgam of, of experiences. I don't know that it changed. It probably got more refined. I'll tell you what did 
what did get much more pronounced is the importance of recurring revenue. Um, I, I sort of understood recurring revenue at a high level and kind of chalked it up as, yeah, of course, recurring revenue is important to an acquirer, but I really had no idea how important it was. Uh, and so, you know, we've done a bunch of research at Value Builder and shows that there are these eight key drivers of the company value, what, what acquirers look for. And recurring revenue is uh, arguably the most important. And it's one that, uh, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, when they hear recurring revenue, they think SaaS companies, right? They think, oh yeah, well that's great for a SaaS company, but I'm, you know, I, I run a, a food truck or I run a flower store or whatever, uh, wouldn't apply to me. And I think that's a mistake because, you know, um, I think virtually any industry can create some recurring revenue. And of course it just makes your business so much more valuable to acquirers. So as you're developing a recurring revenue stream, how important is specialization in terms of that recurring revenue model? Is it that you are specialized in a few products and services and that you charge in a recurring revenue format? Or is it uh, a few different revenue streams? So specialization, I, I don't think has any has a, has a lot to do with recurring revenue. I think the reason as an entrepreneur you want to specialize is because you're putting finite resources, very finite resources against one idea. And as soon as you dilute that by going after two or three different target market segments or with two or three different product ideas, it, they'll all fail because you're just you're just taking a, a very small amount of money or resources and and diluting it uh, and dissecting in two three four ways so so you know from my experience uh, i would i would pick one target segment and at least until you're uh, a million or two in revenue before you start worrying about what the next target market could be or what the next product could be um when it comes to recurring revenue, uh, that's really, I think, a, a slightly different idea. Like you could look at, um, uh, you know, something like a Netflix, where there's obviously it's an entire business model based on recurring revenue. There's all kinds of different customers at Netflix. Most are consumers, but there's all kinds of different customers. So they've got tremendous variety among their customer pool, but it's it's really selling the same solution. If that makes sense. Sure. So when you set out to build a business with the intention of selling, or maybe not, um, do you pick the, the thing that you're specializing in out of the gates? Or do you think it's important to try a lot of things and like your character in the book, then look back and understand what you've done really well and what's worked the best? Look, I think if you can niche down to begin with, you're going to cut, you're going to accelerate your speed to scale much faster. Um, and I got this wrong in virtually every business that, that, that I've run. I'm not really a planner. I'm much more iterative. And so I've done, you know, my, my typical model is kind of put a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. And, and that's burned me a few times. And so if I were, if I had the rigor or to do it over again, I think it kind of trying to think through a little bit more what is the offering uh i, I think shortcuts uh you a lot um so i would you know it's in lean or you know uh, terminology it's 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 kind of um uh, popular these days to talk about, you know, your basic product that you could market and sell. I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, because, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to create three basic products. I try to create kind of one concept and say, you know, will, you know, does this have legs? Can I get somebody to buy it? So the more specialized you can be out of the gates, the more time you can uh, cut down as you're trying to build a sellable company. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're not specialized out of the gate, uh, you run the risk of running out of money. You run the risk of, of creating a bunch of businesses that need different staffing models, that need different people with different expertise. And then you're, you know, you've got a round peg in a square hole. How do I get rid of this person who I've hired to do X where I realize that I actually need Y? Like it just creates a bunch of mess and, and I've, which I've lived through many times. So I would, if you could specialize early, figure out kind of one product, one service, one target segment uh, and, and try to get that off the ground um, before you start to go too wide with uh, with what you're offering. So for businesses that already exist, like the Stapleton agency did in the example in your book, uh, looking back at all of the different products and services that they offer, are there certain things that you recommend they evaluate those uh, those those offerings based on to see what they should really decide to, to go all in on? Yeah, at Value Builder, we use this model called TVR. It stands for Teachable, Valuable, Repeatable. Uh, so Teachable is so, – so basically what you would do is you get a whiteboard and you write down all the services and products that you sell. And then you would score them on three, three dimensions, how teachable they are to employees, how valuable they are to customers, and how repeatable they are, meaning how, what kind of recurring revenue stream you can get out of, that, out of that product. And then really what you're looking for is the service or product that scores highest in an aggregate across those three dimensions. And that's your TVR. And that's really where I would start. Got it. Okay. So if you decide that you've picked the one thing that you're going to focus on and you're going to say no to everything else, uh, it's it's almost definitely going to impact your revenue. And mm. uh, as most entrepreneurs try to build their business, they think the more revenue I've got, the more uh, attractive I'll be to uh, an acquirer. So how do you how do you think about the difference between revenue and the actual value of a business, even if revenue shrinks as you're pursuing this? Yeah. So, you know, when an acquirer looks at buying a company, they're making a build or buy decision. They may not tell you that, but essentially they're looking at your company and saying, do they have something that that's really, truly unique that would take us a lot of money or a lot of time to replicate? Or is it something that we could just go replicate without acquiring the company? If the latter's the tr true, then they won't buy your business. They'll simply try to compete with you, right? And so the latter is true uh, when what you've created is a commodity or something that's tr not really differentiated. And so if you're responding to RFPs, for example, to just get to the next level of revenue, it may feel good. Um, uh, but it actually doesn't get you very far because uh, an acquirer will look at that revenue you gain through uh, winning an RFP, and in many cases they'll look at it and discount it dramatically because they'll say, you know, that's 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 really just being acquired through better pricing. Uh, and the same rules that made them go to the RFP in the first place means that they're going to have to RFP the business in a year or two anyways, and and we'll go through the same song and dance. So if you're Bidding on price or selling on price, for example, in, in an effort just to build the top line of your revenue, it's a bit of a fool's errand in the sense that you're really not adding any value to your company uh, and you're creating a lot of complexity. Where acquirers look at a business and say, they say, wow, I want what they've created. Uh, you know, like when Microsoft bought LinkedIn as an example, they looked at that and said, man, uh, LinkedIn is the professional social network. Uh, they've carved out some unique territory against Facebook and, and the others at the time. Um, you know, it would take us years and, 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 and billions to create that. Uh, let's go buy that because that's a strategic asset for us. Um, 
you know, you know, if if they if it were a generic Me Too Facebook at the time, uh, they wouldn't have bought it because there's no point in differentiation. But right. they looked at it as a professional network. They want to move more Office 365 subscriptions. It it felt like a good purchase. So, you know, maybe beyond. Uh, recurring revenue, how differentiated your offering is in the marketplace, how unique is going to be one of those kind of key drivers of company value. Got it. We, co- we call it the monopoly control of value, whether it's, it's our little name we use. <laughs> uh, so you naming things, I noticed in your system, you've got a, a lot of names for things. And even in the book, they called it the, yeah, uh, the five-step sure. logo design process. Uh, you know, a lot of companies won't apply that type of unique branding to what mm. they do to distinguish themselves. So is that something that uh, that you always recommend when you're trying oh, to create sure. value? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, take ownership over the nomenclature, right? Create your own blue ocean, uh, your own category of one. As soon as you define yourself as a generic category, like I'm an accountant or I'm a massage therapist, it invites for the customer the ability to compare you with everybody else. Mm-hmm. So you're an accountant. Great. Well, there's three other accountants down the street and they charge $200 an hour. Why do you charge $300 an hour? You're all of a sudden commoditizing yourself. Whereas if you've got the the 12-step financial management system or uh, you know, fill in the blank, You've 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 got something that makes you unique and special when you've got something different. Uh, you have pricing authority to some extent. When you have pricing authority, better margins and it creates a, a, a you know domino effect. So so really, y- you want to own the nomenclature around your company, the naming, uh, the branding, because it gives you a point of differentiation. Yeah, you could call yourself a generic bike shop <laughs> or generic massage therapist, whatever. But really, what you want to create is something unique that 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 you're a blue ocean or a, you know a category of one. Great advice. So as you're building a company and, you know, whether you want to sell it or not, actually, that's a great point you made at the beginning of the book is when you're building something to sell, it's really building with the option to sell, right? That if you build a stable company that uh, is valuable in the eyes of an acquirer, you can decide to keep it. And that's a that's a perfectly fine option. So of of all the steps on the way uh, on that path. Where do you see most small businesses struggle to create value in a business that could sell? Yeah, I mean, and it's why I think what you do is so good and so important for business owners. It's really structuring a business so that it can thrive without the owner. Um, you know, that's the one, if you, if you could draw a, a common theme or a thread across all of the eight drivers we measure, it's really, can this business thrive without the owner? And, and if the answer is no, you really don't have a sellable company. But if the answer is yes, you've got something, uh, you might have something. In many cases, you will have something that will be attractive to acquire. And so thinking through everything through that lens, including how you're systematizing the business, right? Like how you're training employees to be able to deliver on what you offer when you're not there. What are the training systems that you've got in place so that you can your business can actually succeed without you, the owner? Um, that's really the the big uh, theme, if you will, across everything that we do. I love that. So we talk at Train You All a lot about you learn to do something, and then you have to document it, and then you can delegate it. And that three-step process of figuring out how to do something consistently, how to document it, and how to delegate it really creates value in the business. So you, in the book, you talk about an instruction manual and creating a step-by-step instruction manual. A lot of the companies that we talk to say, you know, that sounds good. That's a project I'd like to get around to, but it's never urgent. So Mm. what what do you say to that when people... uh, 
That is that, you know, you've hit on something that is so important. Um, it is the quintessential problem in in what we do, and that is that building value is never a burning platform, right? Unless you're six weeks away from selling, in which case it's way too late. Um, it's always, as Stephen Covey talked about the four quadrants, it's always the highly important but never time sensitive. Like you can get through another day without documenting the process for you know turning on the the, the lights in the office in, in in the morning, right? You can get through one more day. You can show up early and make sure the lights are on. Um, it's never going to be the you know critical burning bridges. So I think somehow you have to manufacture that. Um, whether you hire a business coach or you use a Google Doc with tasks, whether you you kind of name and claim some sort of uh, promise to the world, like you're going to get this done by this date, you're going to document this system and, and there'll be penalties if you don't, you have to somehow manufacture that urgency because your business won't do it for you. Your business will always be thirsty for uh, another sale, uh, you know, another employee that needs vacation approved or whatever. There'll always be a burning, you know, fire that you're asked to, to deal with. It's never going to be documenting that important system. And so, you know, it's, 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 I mean, it's one of the main reasons that so many businesses fail to sell. Did you know that only one out of every 10 businesses listed by a business broker actually ever transact, ever wow. sell? So these are guys who have built businesses for 10, 20, 30 years, right? Gone to the process of hiring and, an, you know, an intermediary, still only one out of 10 of them actually sell. And so, you know, the other nine are left empty handed. So this stuff's important, but it, it does take someone with tremendous discipline to, to put the big rocks in as Stephen Covey says so eloquently. So, um, I don't know the answer to that one. Let me know if you ever figure it out. (laughs) I will for sure. So another question that we get asked is, is there an appropriate company size or, or, or something, a level of maturity that you begin to document, you know, when, when should you start to standardize your processes, um, in, in the business? I mean, the obvious answer is, is when you've got employees, uh, I, you know, so much is, is changing in a very young, early stage company that you can spend, I think a lot of time, uh, you know, a lot of cycles documenting processes that change dramatically. So, um, you know, I, I think you're probably a better expert to ask on that. But in the very early days, um, you know, if your business is pivoting and changing, you, you, you may end up spending too much time documenting process and not enough time figuring out what's going to stick. But, but as you start to zero in on what they call a product, you know, product market fit, right? So when you start to see, okay, this product seems to work with this kind of customer, maybe you've hired your first employee or two you know, I think that's when you start to, uh, to document, uh, when, when it's not going to frankly be wasted effort. Now, how long before you want to sell the business, should you really start getting serious about making this plan and, and whether it's a transition plan or a plan to document or how, how in your experience and in the four companies you've built and sold, what's that timeline like? Yeah. So I would say early, as early as you can possibly do it. Um, you know, it's funny, the more you can start making decisions about your business through the lens of how would an acquirer think about this? I'll I'll tell you a story. I do this podcast and I interview a different entrepreneur every week and say, like, tell me about your exit. It's all about companies who sold. And I interviewed this guy who had a frozen yogurt company. And he said, um, I said, you know, I was describing the business and he said, yeah, I went to market 
and I always wanted, I, I always wanted retail stores. Like I wanted people to recognize me in the community. So I wanted retail stores, my frozen yogurt, but he also made the frozen yogurt and he sold it to Kroger's and other big grocery stores. And this is like a pretty big company, 60 or $70 million. I can't remember the exact amount, but you know, it's a substantial company. And so he goes to market with this, this hybrid business, right? Like it's got some retail stores and they also manufacture this frozen yogurt. And he says when he went to market, he got crickets. People either like kind of knew what to do with a retail company uh, and they knew what to do with the distribution food brand. But this kind of hybrid of a food brand that also had its own retail stores was just kind of an anomaly that they didn't know what to do with. And so he got virtually no. In fact, he got no offers for the company. Uh, he went in a fire sale basically and sold off the business for just the distribution business, i.e. the brand and the distribution in the, in the, in the stores like Kroger. And literally the day after he made that sale, the acquirer shut down the retail stores. So all of the, the, the millions of dollars and the, in the hours and years of headaches managing that retail sort of footprint was for naught. It was a complete red herring, something that he, sh that he could have put you know, grown a business much more carefully and successfully if he just focused on what an acquirer would value. And so I've always stuck with that story in my head is, is if he, if he had been thinking early, what would an acquirer value? What acquirer's value is the brand, the distribution into, into the, into the retail, uh, you know, big box food stores. They don't, you know, value a bunch of minimum wage employees on street funds selling ice cream. It's just, that's just not what acquirers care about. And so had he known that going in, you know, even though he might've been 10 years away from selling, he would have made different decisions in his business. So, so I'm a big believer in, to your earlier point, whether you want to sell now or in 10 years, if you can start to think through the lens of how would an acquirer think about this? Um, I think it makes a ton of sense. You almost have to put your investor hat on and look at your business as a as an outsider and and wonder how much you would buy it for. Yeah, exactly. And and ask yourself like, would I buy this thing for what I think it's worth? Right. If not, why not? Right. Is it because it's too dependent on you personally? Uh, do you have too much customer concentration as one you know client generating most of your revenue? Um, you know, have you done a crappy job documenting what you do? Do you have a crappy brand? Are you buying revenue? Like, there's all kinds of reasons why an acquirer would look at your business and say, I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. um, but the you know again, the common theme is would your business succeed without you personally running it every day? Right. And going back to your book, I, I mean, it started off with an example of someone wanting to sell their business because mm. he didn't want to be in it anymore. <laughs> and he was faced with the, the reality that, well, a business that you don't want to be in anymore isn't very attractive to, <laughs> to an acquirer. So, uh, yeah, it's the horrible truth about what we do is that is that the, the, the moment you want to sell is like the moment your business is least valuable, right? <laughs> and, and the opposite is true, right? Like when your business is the most valuable, you'll never want to sell it. And so it's, it's, it's the irony of what we do is that, uh, you know, that when, when people get burnt out and they get tired of their business, it's exactly the wrong time to sell it. So it's right. just one of those the ironic things. So if you're following your playbook and going through your implementation guide and building a business that does have value, a lot of entrepreneurs wonder, what is my company worth? And mm. uh, are there back of the napkin calculations or, or what resource would you recommend for someone to try to understand uh, the dollar value they could put on their company today or maybe what they're shooting for in the future? Yeah, in fact, I mean, go to valuebuilder.com and you'll actually get that. Uh, we have a questionnaire. You can take about 15 minutes to complete it uh, and we'll give you a score out of 100. 
we'll also get you connected to one of our certified value builders who can give you the estimate of value based on the questionnaire you complete. Uh, we found the average business that starts the value builder questionnaire achieves a score of 59 out of a possible 100. Mm-hmm. And those businesses are trading at about 3.5 times their pre-tax profit. For our graduates that get all their value bidder score all the way up to 90 or greater out of a possible 100, those businesses are trading at 7.1 times pre-tax profit or more than double. So first step is figure out your score and, and figure out how to, uh, how to grow your score from there. Excellent. So valuebuilder.com, anyone out there that is wondering what the value of your business is, check it out, valuebuilder.com and take the assessment. It, uh, I'm, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. So thank you for that. Um, great. As we move into the end of this, uh, I, I guess the, the, the last question I would ask you is if someone wants to create a more process-focused company, is there, is there a, a simple first step? You know, what, when someone says to you that, you know, like, like in the book when, when the guy went to his mentor, his TED, uh, if, if I have a TED, what, what is the first step in, in trying to create a sellable asset? Mm. Yeah, I mean, what Ted did uh, with Alex in the book is, is he just sort of tried to get Alex to think about what 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 are the projects or what are the pro- products that you sell where you really are feel like you're adding value. You you kind of athletes talk about being in the zone, right? We've all as entrepreneurs, I think, sold things where we're like eh, like I didn't add a lot of value there. It wasn't you know it wasn't highly differentiated. It wasn't something that we really specialize in. But on the other hand, hopefully there are products and. Services Services, when you do sell them, you're like, yeah, like we should be doing more of this. This feels right. This feels really differentiated. And when you identify that, it's really trying to peel back the layers and figure out what's your unique process. And it's hard to do on your own. It's great to get an, somebody to interview you. And if you can find a journalist, journalists by training are really good interviewers, right? Like they're they're really good at peeling back the the layers to try to, you know, they, they ask why five times during an interview. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's a, a you know a, a unique opportunity to find a journalist or someone who's really good at asking questions and just get them to interview you, because if you've been doing it for years, the chances of you being able to sort of articulate it or identify it are pretty low. Uh, but if somebody really tries to say, so what what why are you really unique at doing this and what's your unique process for doing this and tell me more about that and how does that work, you start to distill down to what is the sort of essence of what you do. Great. So full, closing the loop, full circle, back to creating that uh, that product, that that service that is teachable, that is valuable, that is repeatable, and then developing recurring revenue to continue to build value in your business and be attractive to an investor. So I love it. Thank you so much for the guide that you put together through that book and for all of the lessons you continue to give through your articles online and your videos. Where can people find you today if they'd like to, to follow you? Yeah, valuebuilder.com. All road leads to uh, all roads lead to valuebuilder and you'll find me there. Okay, perfect. So check John out at valuebuilder.com. Uh, he is as we said at the beginning, not only a best-selling author, serial entrepreneur, but the foremost expert in uh, in, in selling uh, building and selling businesses. And if you haven't read Build to Sell, like I said, one of my favorite books, so please do check it out. John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Really appreciate it. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Process Makes Perfect. If you're listening on your earbuds, on a run, in the car, we also have a version on YouTube. So if you wanna see this in color video with me interviewing all these great guests, check it out on YouTube. Just search Chris Ronzio and you'll find my channel on there. If you found this helpful, we'd love for you to leave a review or rate the podcast. Please do that and we'll send you some swag as a little thank you. If you found the information valuable, please share it with a friend, a family member, or anyone else you think could benefit from the information. Remember to connect with me at Chris Ronzio on all social media platforms or the company at Trainual. That's train U-A-L, like a training manual, everywhere that you want to follow us. Thanks again for watching or listening, and we hope to see you next time.